we can't comment anyway. And we are live. You're watching Fantastic Fiction at KGB. I'm Matthew Kressel. I co-host the series here with Ellen Datlow. Tonight's guests are Sean and McGuire and Nadia Balkin. Uh, thank you for joining us. We're uh, excited about the reading tonight. Uh, right now, we're just hanging out and talking about cats. Yes. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you can so, come in and talk about cats too. If you can like. come in and talk about cats too. So yeah, we're not going to start the readings until about ten after, maybe ten after seven p.m. Eastern time. So just hang out, pull up a drink, pull up a chair, and uh, get cozy. Um, how is everyone tonight? Are there, I don't see anyone. Is anyone there? No one's here yet. Well, no. I mean, no one's commented yet. But uh, oh, but you see, oh, yeah, no, there, there are people watching. Oh, that's good. Well, yeah. if you're watching, say something so we can see. <laughs> yeah. It may take them a second or two to uh, to file in. Mm. But uh, is anyone drinking anything interesting? Iced tea. Iced tea? I'm afraid to drink any alcohol anymore, you know, because, Why? because I'm allergic. I became allergic to wine and it makes me sick. And I just have to test different alcohols now. Mm. That's so sad. Mm. I know. I like red wine with meals, you know. It's yeah. Kind of nice, and it can't Crystal do it. Light. Hi, Amy. Hi, Amy. I ate dinner really quickly before this all happened because I knew otherwise I wouldn't be able to eat till 9.30 or so and I'd be starving. Right. Yeah, my it's dinner is sitting here on the mm -hmm. Oh, that's right. It is early for you. Hi, Jay Bordeaux. One. Hi, Jay Bordeaux. Thank you for joining us. Where were you from, Jay Bordeaux? If you feel like, if you want to tell us. You don't have to tell us. If you, you don't, don't have to. Or you we know make up Amy's from New York. Right. I'm drinking something. Oh, another interesting. Sour bikini, New York sour City. Sour bikini, real. Oh, okay. Sour bikini, yes. Hi, Carol. <laughs> I Hi, could, Carol. I could try drinking something. Just have my tums or my Pepsi handy. <laughs> I mean, that sounds like a big risk for for you. I don't get. I mean. I have tried some things, but I have to just be careful because I'm not sure what's going to trigger it. Right. You know, I miss not walking, but it's not great. Anyway, hi, Misty. Oh, I got my Roomba today. It came in a giant box. I think, and when they when they got when the delivery man brought it, I was like, "What is that?" I mean, I didn't order something that large, and I was like, "But it's from Amazon." It's like, did the Roomba come as a huge box? And yes, it came in a big box, and then it was in a smaller box. And then I, in an even smaller box, and I took it out, and I didn't have any more energy after that. <laughs> so I'll, I'll try to figure it out tomorrow. Your cats are going to love that. I don't know. Will they? It doesn't make sound. Well, I mean, you know. Will they like it? partly sarcastic. They're going to have fun with it, that's for sure. Eventually. Oh, teriyaki yeah. shrimp. Hmm. I had a hamburger on an English so did I. You did. Yes. I make really good hamburgers. I mean, I, they're just all meat, and I hate to put when people put stuff in it, like whatever they put in it. I just want a hamburger. I just want meat. Thank you. Well done, meat on a bun. Over the Woodward Wall. Uh, yes. Mm. Oh, interesting. Misty's on TV. What's that? Oh, yeah. We're, we're on. We're on her TV. Mm -hmm. Or their TV. Let's see. Oh, hi, Sophie. My, okay. Sophie might join. Sophie is now on the windowsill. Hi, Sophie. She may join. She may be on, come, go on the printer soon. 
Well, it's straight up 7 p.m., so if you're just joining us, welcome. This is Fantastic Fiction at KGB. Um, we have 16th month doing it virtually. Ugh. Can you believe that? I remember March 2020, everything started to shut down, and I was starting to get really nervous about doing it in person, and we just said, you know what, let's do it virtually. I had no idea it was going to be 16 months later. We're still doing it. Crazy. Yeah. No, I have to, sorry. Go on. No, go ahead. I have to do, I'm doing a ReaderCon reading that recording stories from uh, the reading from the, the Shirley Jackson book. And I can't, I have to figure it out. I have to do it on zoom on Saturday. I got four people who are members of ReaderCon, and I'm afraid I, if I could do it on this, I would be easier or if I had help, but it's like, I have to figure it out. I, you know, and I'm afraid I'm going to totally screw it up. <laughs> Hi, Julie, listening while the sun shines in. That sounds nice. Hi there. Misty. Uh, we are, scheduled for October to go back in person. We originally were thinking September, but it's kind of busy. It's a busy time for everyone, school starting, work starting, you know, it's like a new. Yeah, and we weren't sure, you know, we couldn't, yeah, so. we couldn't schedule that far in advance. You know, we were afraid to schedule it for opening. So we, you know, now we're scheduled through, uh, you know, through October, until October. Yeah, so. Virtual. Yeah, three more months of this, uh, not including this month. Mm -hmm. And uh, yes, Carol and Amy went to a live outdoor reading last night. That was Sam Miller's reading. I saw a photo. It looked really is that cool. On, is that on a roof? Is yeah, it, it looked like it was on a rooftop. Roof? Is um, that the ice cream one? Yes. Yes, the ice cream one. Are they always outside on the roof? I, was that their first one? I don't know if it was their first. But right? it, I, mean, yeah, I mean, I think, I guess people are more comfortable to go into a big crowd if you're outdoors but um i've been in uh, a couple bars inside and it wasn't terrible mm -hmm. uh yes they're using their apple tv so we're on tv oh my god we're in hd uh-oh that means we're huge it was right? the second one okay um did right. was anyone else reading besides sam miller i got to get on their mailing list or whatnot i i i um didn't even well, know. I mean, is it covered outside? Because what if it rains? I mean, I don't know. I don't, from the photo, it didn't look it, but I wasn't there. So maybe we could ask the people. So, who work. Yeah. Amy, Carol, how does it work yeah. if it rains? You get wet, I guess. Roof of Ample Hill. Oh, so it's the ice cream place, the Ample Hills. Cream. Right. But what if it rains? Yeah. It's on Facebook. Yeah. All right. Well, I'll, I'll join the group. I, I mean, I haven't been on Facebook a lot lately, so. Not cover editor? What? Cover What's editor? I don't know. I don't then, know. Anyway. No, it's Brooklyn. Uh, it's hard for me to get myself out there. Right. <laughs> it's like, oh, no, not Brooklyn. Wait. It's not that far into Brooklyn. Well, I don't know. Where is it in Brooklyn? You I act mean, like Brooklyn is on another it is. continent. Well, it is. It might as well be. <laughs> you know? I mean, going there, I hate. Coming back, it's easy. Once I get to Manhattan, I can find my way around. In Brooklyn, if you go... Depends on where you're going in Brooklyn. Huh? It, depends, it depends on where you're going. Oh, I know, but if you get lost in Brooklyn, you're really lost. You know, it's not easy to find public transportation and get out of where you are. In Manhattan, I know where everything is. There are buses. You have a smartphone now. You can get Lyft or Uber. Uh, well, I haven't used it yet. It's, like, <laughs> it's, it's so oh, it's so good. It's so candy. Well, I I have to figure out how I'm going to get to Newark Airport next week. 
I mean, they're all expensive. I was going to take a bus, a cab, and and the uh, Newark Airbus, and I think that'll take hours and hours. I just have to bite the bullet and pay the money. Mm. And I'll I never go to Newark again because I'm way across town now. I used to be right close to Newark Airport, you know, but on the west side it was easier. Yeah. yeah. So I'm not sure. I, mean, I was checking the prices for the, you know, car service versus Lyft. Lyft at 1 a.m. was over $100. At 9 a, 9.30, it was $70. And I'll be leaving around 8 o'clock. You're better off for, like, airport service to just call, like, a local cab rather than Lyft or Uber because they do these, like, congestion prices. I know. What I think I'm going to do is do a car service. Yeah. And then never go to Newark again. <laughs> I'll always go to JFK. The flights are cheaper, but it is harder to get to. I well, now it's impossible, you know, yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I mean, the easiest way to get to Newark from Manhattan is if you can get to the path, just take the path straight to Grove Street. And from there, a lift to Newark Airport is only about $20. Mm -hmm. Oh. Well, you yeah. know, I'm yeah. going to the airport, catching a plane, I'm always nervous that I'm going to miss it. Coming back, I have more options. But going, yeah. I just want to go I would go with a car service just for that directness, especially yeah. since if you're heading, well, you're not heading to a convention this time. No. Most of the time when I'm traveling, a convention's involved. And so my car service is tax deductible. Yay. Uh, yeah, no, it's but, tax yeah. deductible. But my sister and I, yeah, I have to meet my sister. We're meeting at the airport in West Palm. Yeah, bring the lift. Just take a lift back. Go to the Grove Street Path Station. It's a short flight of stairs. It's a very mm -hmm. nice path station, safe area. You're fine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, maybe I'll do that. Well, coming back, it's just easier. I can take, there's a Newark Airport Express that goes to Grand Central, and I can take a cab from there. You know, but it's just getting there is like, I can't deal with it, especially if this is my first trip <laughs> since mm -hmm. the pandemic. What did I hear something? Wait a minute. Oh, boy. Hello, Jack. The cats are crawling again. Intermission. <laughs> well, there, there Alan goes. And there, and Let's let's look at Sean and the cat first. Oh, that's Thomas. Hello, Thomas. Jack, what is Jack Thomas wearing? wearing? Jack yes. Thomas is wearing yeah. a painted shirt in his size. He has there an anxiety disorder. Oh, so he is an adult male Maine Coon who has to be shaved three times a year. We we get him a high and tight. We say we're gonna peel that cat, and he comes back looking like a shorn sheep. Because otherwise he ingests too much hair and he gets really, really sick. Yeah. Amy, I'm gonna, Amy, I did check Carmel. I'm probably going to use him going. In the meantime, so Jack has started to knock things over, which means he wants either attention or food. Probably food, but he just ate, so he's not getting any more. Do you just have a pop-up that says Jack the Jerk for every time Ellen's cat does something? Yes. 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 <laughs> Okay, that makes a whole lot of sense. Yeah, it it happens every every month. Um, well, we're coming up on about 10, it's 7.08, but I, I think we could probably start. What do you say, Ellen? We could. I'm petting Jack, though. I could wait until you're done petting Jack. We could, we could wait. Where'd he go? He went away. It's okay. <laughs> we can start. All right. So you're watching Fantastic Fiction at KGB. I'm Matthew Kressel. I co-host the series with Ellen Datlow. And tonight's guests are Shonen McGuire and Nadia Bolkin. Thank you for joining us. We're excited. Uh, as we were saying, uh, this is our 16th month doing it virtually. Um, so uh, just a couple of quick announcements before we get into tonight's reading. Uh, so uh, 
as most of the viewers know, but if you're joining us for the first time, we normally do the readings at the KGB bar in Manhattan, hence fantastic fiction at KGB. Uh, so they were closed for the pandemic. Um, I think New York City's fully open now, from what I heard. Which but, doesn't mean we're going into huge crowds. Right, we're not going to go back to the bar <laughs> until October. I think by then everyone should be hopefully pretty comfortable being in a bar. Uh, but yeah, they did take a big financial hit being closed for um, for for that period. So if you can uh, support the bar, there's a, there's a link there. There's a link in the YouTube uh, description below if you can support the bar. Uh, the other thing too I, I want to mention is that the the series itself uh, costs us a little bit of money to run each month, and uh, if you can uh, support us, um, just click on the link below. Um, we give the readers a little stipend. Uh, we pay for the streaming service. We were taking the readers out to dinner. Uh, we do. We have been uh, giving KGB Bar money each month as well. So if you can, um, you know, uh, support us, we. we Greatly appreciate it. And some of you uh, have already been supporting us, some of you watching tonight. I won't name you, but thank you very much. <coughs> it, is, it is extremely appreciated. Uh, I also want to mention that we have a sponsor tonight. Tonight's show is sponsored by, by Tor. This episode is sponsored by Tor and Nightfire Books. Read the latest from Hugo and Nebula award-winning author Sean and McGuire across the green grass sea, part Field. of the Reward Children's series. Fields. No. What? So that, what? What are you but, saying? So which oh, is okay. It? So across the green grass sea, I thought you were saying along the saltwise sea, which is not part of the Wayward Children's series. Across the great green grass fields is. My apologies. Okay. Oh. <laughs> Oh. Across the green grass fields. I'm sorry, I'm reading from a text. You're right, the screen is different. Thank you. Um, and uh, part of the Way We're Children series. And listen to And When She Was Bad by Nadia Balkan in Come Join Us by the Fire Season 1, Nightfire's free audio-only anthology available now on Spotify, Google Play, and more. So definitely check that out. Um, yes. So um, I think that's it. So what, we're, what we do, if this is your first time joining us, we're gonna have uh, Nadia read, then we take a five minute break, then Shannon's gonna read, and then we'll do a Q&A afterwards. Cue up your questions. Yeah, cue up your, think of some good questions to ask, and, and we'll do that after the readings. But um, do we have anything else? Not, not for now. You're not going to give the history. Don't give the history of KGB again. He does that all the time, but you can look it up. <laughs> okay, I won't then. <laughs> you can. Um, <laughs> all right. Our first reader is Nadia Bulkin. Nadia is the author of the short story collection, She Said Destroy. She has been nominated for the Shirley Jackson Award five times. She grew up in Jakarta, Indonesia with her Javanese father and American mother before relocating to Lincoln, Nebraska. She has two political science degrees and lives in Washington, D.C. Here's Nadia. Hi, all. Um, hopefully you can hear me okay. Um, if not, I'm sure someone will tell me. Um, so this is also my first time here. Um, so I am really excited to be here tonight. I'm going to read for you all today um, a short story called Vide Cormeum, which is Latin for See My Heart. Um, it was originally published earlier this year in an anthology called Voices in the Darkness from Crossroad Press. 
here it is. And here we go. The Scavas are quiet this morning. By 7 a.m., the farm is usually buzzing. Jonah taking feed to the pigs, Lucy taking milk from the cows, Rin taking shit from the rabbits. Jack and Sarah with their hands on their hips, preening smugly over the productivity of their brood. And here Neil was worried that he'd get in trouble for being late. If he'd known they were taking their time this morning, he wouldn't have damn near thrown out his back jumping out of bed to bring Jack a spare alternator for the struggling tractor. Neil trudges up the driveway and knocks on the front door. He waits a few seconds and then notices that the house is dark. There is no light leaking out from under the door, no sound either, no grinding coffee maker, no shrieking girls. Did they go to Jastro for the weekend? No, the truck is in the driveway. Luckily, two of the blinds in the window looking into the living room are bent. Neil sees someone lying on the floor. Well, sees a big pair of socked feet anyway. Maybe pillar of the community Jack is passed out drunk. The idea fills Neil with glee. Now energized, Neil hurries around Sarah's lilac bushes. He hears animals lowing in the mist, and somewhere in the back aisles of his brain, he realizes how odd it is that there are no little human voices talking back. But he tucks that realization under the desire to catch Jack in a compromised position. And then he pauses. The back door is open, and not wide open, but it's sitting there unlatched in a way he knows none of the Scavas would ever, ever leave it. Something overtakes him as he crosses the threshold, a splitting between his body and his head. His body enters the house so effortlessly it's like he's rolling on wheels, but his head, knowing something is wrong, powers down. Jack, he calls softly. He's come to hate Jack's voice because it's always telling him to do this, that, or the other thing, but right now that voice is all he wants to hear. Hey, Jack, you all right? All right, escapes his lips after it's already too late, after he has seen that Jack, lying on the floor of the living room, is in no way all right. People look so solid on the outside. Inside, we're just liquid. Neil stands over Jack's body for a small eternity, watching blood seep into the hardwood until his brain finally finds some other ledge to land on. What about Sarah and the kids? He yells up the stairs, hello, anyone here? Curiously, he's afraid to call any of their names, even though each one balloons in his throat. And that's because he knows. By the silence that's turning his tinnitus into an insectile scream, he knows. Was young, his father told him a story about a man who found the wreckage of a small plane crash in the foothills of Mount Minot. The man knew from the way the plane had left nothing but black soot on the snow that no one could have survived. And yet he went to look, even though there was nothing to do but see. That's the story Neil's thinking about as he starts to climb the stairs. 10 minutes later, he is back in the living room with Jack, calling the police. He could not speak upstairs. He is not sure in this moment if he will ever be able to go up the stairs of any house ever again. Whoever is answering the phones today asks him to wait while they send someone, so he waits. He waits, making little walls around his eyes with his hands. He waits, counting the seconds so he doesn't think, doesn't smell, doesn't hear. Fifteen minutes later, he's sitting on the front porch telling the cops about Jack, even though, of course, they already know all about Jack. He's telling a story about him and Jack that isn't a lie, but isn't quite true either. 
Jack the Wonderful Boss, him the Grateful Worker, one of my best friends. It's a story that Neil wishes was true, the story that deserves to be true. But there is a liquid sound rising from the house behind him, like a gurgling brook or a boiling pot. Everyone is liquid. The sound builds and builds until it seems to be coming from inside him and Neil finally begs to be allowed to leave. He rushes home as if he's being chased, not by anything in particular, simply by the great crumbling of the world. He almost slips when he makes the mistake of thinking of Sarah's face resting in pieces on her pillow. By the time he gets to the gate of his shut house, the pressure on Neil's poor old heart is making it hard to move his limbs. Still, he forces his fingers to relatch the gate, to stumble up the path, to relock the door, to protect himself. Inside, Neil turns around to maybe have himself a drink, at least catch himself a breath, and then he sees it. Blood welling into his living room, onto his favorite rug, seeping straight out of the floor like a rose pluming from a wound. The Scava's autopsies haven't told the investigators anything new. Death from hemorrhaging between the hours of three and six, missing murder weapon, likely an ice axe, no fingerprints, no DNA. Annette's got a feeling though. She's got a feeling that the key to unlocking what happened to the Scavas is still somewhere inside that house. She's heard the theories passed around the break room. Oh, it's a disgruntled farm worker, burglar, one of those vagrants who's always lurking at the train station asking for work. But Annette's got a feeling. She's got a feeling this killer fits a profile they're not even considering. She's got a feeling this killer isn't bounded by the mundane history of modern crime in Kolak. She's got a feeling that this killer might hover. Moonlight catches movement in the bushes around the house. A prowler? Annette had dismissed reports by passers-by of shadows hanging around the house, the vague sense of presence. Just rubberneckers wanting to get involved, she thought. But now she sits straight up in the patrol car, adrenaline shooting so fast it hits her in the eyeballs. He came back. She's about to climb out and make a vainglorious name for herself when a squirrel pops out of the bushes. Annette sighs and reminds herself, unhappily, that Dugash would rather have her stare at an empty house than conduct a single interview. You're smart, Dugash told her, but this is sensitive. You don't know these people. He's right, she doesn't know them. She doesn't know where Mr. X gets his coffee every morning and how long his Y has been in town and why the Alphas and the Betas love to hate each other, or even that they hate each other at all. Ms. Annette has been in Colac for two years and this is still true. She likes it that way. She likes the quiet impermanence of weekends, jogging around the classy lake with no one but the ducks for company, preparing for another life somewhere else. Besides, Annette knows other things. She reads cold case files from other towns within a 10 kilometer radius. She sees behavior the other cops are numb to. She's immune to their predispositions. Oh, he wouldn't. Oh, she's always. And it doesn't matter that she never met the Scavas while they were alive. She can see them better this way, with neither bells nor whistles. Truth is cold. Truth is dry bones. Annette checks the time, which is midnight. Then she looks up and her heart, well, it doesn't stop exactly, more so goes still, because moonlight has unexpectedly filled the house like the winter moon has simply suddenly dropped like an anchor into the kitchen. For a moment, she wonders if this stillness is what it feels like to become dead. But then, thankfully, her pulse revs up like a jumpstart engine when she realizes what has probably happened. Someone's broken in. Annette checks herself for her gear and the house keys before climbing out. She's got a feeling and she sneaks up to the front door. A sour, bitter feeling, but not the kind she gets when she thinks she's about to have a violent encounter. 
This is an older feeling, a murkier one. But by the time her hippocampus has any hope of placing the feeling, it's too late. She's already touching the handle. Inside, a man and a woman putter around the kitchen. He's washing his hands at the sink, although the water isn't on. She's wiping the countertop with an invisible cloth, round and round and round. When they turn to each other in conversation, their faces blur, just like the pictures of ghosts that get tucked away in the back of photo albums, dismissed as double exposure. It's Mr. and Mrs. Scava cleaning up in the kitchen as if they have not noticed that they are dead. Thoughts are colliding inside Annette's head, so fast and vigorous it's like hail on a roof, but the only one she manages to pluck out of the storm is the utter horror of spending eternity in what used to be one's kitchen, wiping up spills. Then they look at her. She hopes they have not seen her, but their eyes, oh, their eyes still see. No soft phantom smudges there. Those eyes sink in like millstones, darker than the night sky, deeper than the ocean floor, heavy enough to leave welts on Annette's skin. By then, everything in Annette's brain has emptied out. All that's left is the sound of negative space, the burn of bleach. She has become Annette in vacuo. What eventually fills the vacuum to her shock are her parents. She left them behind, a hundred kilometers away, in a humble white farmhouse, not unlike this one. They're probably doing these chores right now, cleaning up the kitchen, putting away food, turning out the lights. Annette creeps backward, hands searching behind her for the door. It would be faster to turn and run, but she's too afraid. She can't put her finger on what exactly she thinks will happen if she breaks eye contact with Mr. and Mrs. Scava, but she's got a feeling. So she keeps creeping and they keep staring until she's out of the house. She creeps backward all the way to her patrol car, which she quickly slips inside and whose doors she quietly locks for the remainder of her watch. The Scavas are so loud now that they are dead. Ella can't drive a kilometer without hearing one of them repeat the question on the billboard on County Road 23. Do you know what happened to me? Theirs is the voice on the nightly news reading regional crime stories that now take up half the broadcast. They are the ones who yell at every child who breaks curfew, every spouse who forgets to lock up. Even their ghost house glows like a beacon on a hill in the half-light, or so Ella's heard. So it bothers Ella that only about 40 people have shown up for the candlelight vigil marking the six-month anniversary of the murders. Ella doesn't understand how anyone could have stayed home, with the Scavas being as loud as they are. She can't hear for half of what the speaker is saying. Something about coming together as a community and keep praying for our wonderful neighbors. How unsettling the thought that people who've been nothing more than a passing pickup truck have suddenly become so familiar in death. And here Ella always used to think of death as the great divider. There's a girl about five meters to Ella's right who looks a bit like Ella's daughter except that girl's brassy brown hair is too long and she knows her daughter would not have changed her mind. What good is that going to do? Her daughter said when Ella suggested going to the vigil together, other than trick you into thinking you're doing something. Come to think of it, the long haired girl looks more like Lucy Scava than her daughter. The girl doesn't have a candle, so her face is shadowed, but when Ella leans forward, she can confirm the aquiline nose, the big plaintive eyes. And then she remembers that she only knows what Lucy Scava looks like because Lucy's dead. And now someone else is speaking, some goof in the police department who wants them to know that they're doing everything we can. A disgruntled murmur passes through the crowd because how can nothing be everything? The woman next to Ella whispers something about a cover-up and she turns to anxiously ask what that means when she sees a young man a few meters to her left. Well, not a man at all, really, just a boy. A boy with that same aquiline nose, the same plaintive eyes. Can the dead still feel the gaze of the living? 
Does it make them shiver too? Because Jonas Gava is looking at Ella. His expression is unreadable, silent. A howling is coming from the exposed tendons in his face, the ragged chunks of flesh where his left jaw should be. The fact that he was killed in a careless hack job somehow makes it 10 times worse. There's a flood of white noise as the microphone changes hands from the policeman to a tearful woman Ella recognizes as her daughter's eighth grade teacher. I keep asking myself, the teacher says, what can I do? How can I help? Because they are helpless, aren't they? That's what her daughter was trying to say. They can't deliver casseroles to a family that's dead. They can't organize search parties for a killer who looks like nothing and everything. They can pray, yes, but they may as well be tossing pennies down a well. A curtain of warm certainty and in bodily integration indoors and people has been pulled back from the town of Kolak and behind that curtain, there is only a void. I don't know the answer to that, the teacher says, looking skyward. All I can think is just don't let them disappear because somebody somewhere knows what happened. These last five words, somebody somewhere knows what happened come in crystal clear for Ella because there was a time long before the Scava murders, long before she had her daughter, when she was that somebody somewhere. She'd been 14, biking home during a spring thaw and taking a shortcut through Herring Road. She'd seen something in the ditch and taken her foot off the pedal only to realize that it was a body emerging face down out of the snow. Over the years, she has tried to convince herself that she saw something else that day, a dead deer, a truck tire, but when her mood is low and the weather is unquiet, she can still see the matted hair, the purplish skin, the dirty bra strap. She has spent many a late hour chewing her fingernails, worrying that the corpse is cold. Because Ella never said anything. She doesn't know why. It was as if a 10 kilo feed sack got strapped to her chest as she pedaled home and she lost her ability to speak. By the time she went back to Herring Road, the snow was melted and there was nobody, nowhere. At the vigil, a sunken-eyed little girl in bloody pink pajamas is staring at Ella. She's surrounded by dozens of adults, but she has chosen Ella. Not the policeman, not the teacher. She needs Ella. To her horror, Ella realizes that she has forgotten the dead child's name. Hello, little one, she whispers, as if sweet-talking a rabbit. And much like a rabbit, the little ghost girl scampers away. Only this time, Ella follows. By the time she pushes out of the crowd, the little Scava girl is gone but there is something tucked in the grass that Ella soon realizes is a body, a very, very small one, a crumpled little brown bird with a busted up wing. Its eyes are clear as glass and so afraid. It's broken, injured, but alive. The Scavas have a history like a thousand others, entire family killed at home. It happens in cities and villages in the sun and the snow, just a run-of-the-mill family axe murder that was cold before it hit the ground. Sean got the tip about the story from one of his listeners, a creeper named Cecil Hotel, who sends him too many cryptic messages, but usually comes through with good leads. Every time Sean thinks about how many of those petrified curiosities he's featured on the It's Not Over podcast, 71 so far, he returns to the conclusion that he and Darren reached when they were 14, that humans are not special, not chosen, not sanctified. If we were, Darren used to say, God would have given us more protection, like porcupine quills or toxic blood. When Sean reaches the point of the Scava story where the cops are ruling out their only suspects, the farmhand, some homeless man, he stops typing and reads the script. There's a flatness there that he doesn't like, a defeated finality that he knows will repel his listeners, people like Cecil Hotel, who live for loose threads, the ellipses, the maybes. 
Sean knows his love competition in this game. That's why he has a niche. It's not over, asks questions. People love mysteries. People love an open door. 623 people love an open door. Sean clicks over to his favorite conspiracy theory forum, looking for ideas, clicks crime, searches Scava. There we go. All the familiar suspects spouting some truly wild stuff that reminds him of the most off the wall shit he and Darren used to come up with. The Scavas were spies that got found out and executed. The Scavas were into the occult and accidentally summoned a demon. The Scavas each somehow hacked open their own throats. It's usually his favorite part of it through the crazy possibilities, but something about tonight's got him queasy. Maybe it was the grocery store sushi. Maybe it's the weird tapping he keeps hearing from the kitchen. Probably, maybe, maybe, he reminds himself, is good. 623 people love maybe. He needs the number in his mind like a tongue dwelling on a canker sore. It makes him feel a little sick to think about those numbers as he tells the stories of the dead, but every new subscriber is another witness, he figures. And isn't witness the last thing a soul can ask for after everything else is gone? I don't want any of that absolution shit, Darren used to say when they were thinking about the fact that the world is just layers upon layers of corpses. I just want someone to say, hey, I see you. I see what you did. I see who you are. An electric tingle races down Sean's arm. He doesn't know why seven years after vanishing off the face of the earth, Darren suddenly won't leave him alone. Fucking Darren for never walking out of a national forest and fucking Darren's parents for having Darren declared dead just because they couldn't handle the uncertainty anymore. Without a body, Sean has to assume that Darren's not dead. That's not to say he thinks Darren is alive. He just doesn't know how anyone can declare another person's life to have ended. Maybe that's what he should have called the podcast. Darren's not dead. Sean always says on every episode that he's a neutral party. He doesn't care what the answer is. Whether it's murder or an accident or an act of God or the devil, he just wants the truth. But he also knows that should his phone ring right now with Darren's parents telling him we have news, he would probably hang up on them because he really needs Darren not to be dead. When Sean reaches the part of the Scava story where the cops are freezing the investigation, he lays his head down on the desk. In his sleep, it is winter. He's in a landscape of rolling hills, the kind he sees in Van Gogh paintings, but never in real life. On the horizon, standing against the spiraling sky, there's a house, a farmhouse. It's a brilliant blue-white, the color of snow under the twilight, and shooting out bright yellow beams like a car headlight. He isn't sure how he knows this, but he knows. It's the house the Scavas live in. No, lived in. No, live in. Outside the house, there's a person. At least he assumes it's a person. It could be anyone, he thinks. And as soon as he does, it turns into Darren, in his full hiking gear. He yells out Darren's name, and though the sound barely carries across the field, the Darren figure turns and goes into the house. At this point, he starts running, feet sloshing through the snow. It seems like he's not getting any closer, like the house is stealing away with Darren. And then he's walking right in the front door. Inside the living room, Darren is lying on the floor. Sleeping? Hurt? He inches closer, and blood starts to pool from Darren's head. Another step forward, and Darren's skin begins to decay. He wants to stop now. He wants to go back. Instead, he stumbles forward another two clunky steps, and wildflowers burst from Darren's ribs. Sean is still screaming when he jolts up at his desk. Fucking Darren. Fucking Darren's fucking dead. The Scavas are up next in Gabby's podcast queue. She checks the description. Family murder. Big family murder. It's not exactly what she feels like listening to right now, but she's already got the episode downloaded and she can't get connected to the airport Wi-Fi. The silence is excruciating. 
Listening to someone else's disaster is the only thing that beats back the void that licks at the edges of her life. She quickly presses play. The last time anybody heard from any member of the Scaba family was 11 o'clock the night before when Lucy Scaba, the middle child, texted her friends goodnight. Listening to the most beautiful of her neighbors sob in the hallway of her apartment building has convinced Gabby that other people sense it too, the void. They just use other things to cover up its droning, to keep themselves busy and productive and validated, cute photos, nice font. None of that helps Gabby. What she needs is a thunderburst of malice, the reminder that the only song the human family has in common is a litany of suffering. She doesn't expect anyone to understand. Her roommate thinks it's morbid that she falls asleep to murder investigations. When she told her father what she was listening to the last time she was home, he just shook his head and walked away. The cuts were so deep that they had been nearly decapitated. A small tick tugs at the corner of Gabby's mouth as she pauses at the departure board, A2. Until now, she has tried to avoid visualizing the body that she will find in her father's hospital room. Her mother says he's pale and deflated and tied up in tubes. It's strange to think of him as a corporeal being with veins and cells and failing organs instead of some bloodless corporate headshot. If they'd had just one neighbor who lived a little closer, could they have been saved? When Gabby was in high school, she got into a car accident. Her mother had been out of town and she was so excited to call her father from the hospital. Now she thought, you'll have to come see me. And the hours crept by and the nurses changed ships and not once did her father pull the curtain open. Is there anyone we can call? They kept asking until she finally told them no. The void is starting to pull down the walls of the airport. So Gabby stops at gate A14 and gets in line for a coffee she doesn't want. The man in front of her has a baby crawling over his shoulder, rubber ring between its teeth. There's a lot of theories out there. I don't feel like talking about them. No matter what, it's a tragedy that this family's whole entire legacy is the fact that they died. Gabby's family is going to get snuffed out too. She knows it just as sure as this drooling baby is going to drop that toothing ring. Her step-siblings don't want children. Gabby's too fucked up to get it done. Just as well, suicides and strokes litter both branches of her family tree. Maybe it'll be a relief not to have a legacy, like a ghost finally fading from memory. The baby drops the ring. Here's what I think. I think it was random, just a freak stroke of bad luck. A predator came through the area and preyed upon them. That's it. Sometimes bad things just happen for no reason at all. Coffee in hand, Gabby resumes her slow walk toward gate A2 as the episode comes to an end and the exit music starts to play. It's a straight shot home from here. In a final attempt to drag herself onward, Gabby takes the moving walkway. Silence starts creeping in and she hurries to fill the void with the next podcast episode when a faint boarding announcement hails from the far end of the terminal. They're calling her flight. That's when she sees them in the smudged windows overlooking the giant cetaceous plains, the ghosts. They're clustered together as if in a family portrait looking hollow and worn and blunted like a set of dull knives, except for those deep, dark eyes. When she realizes who they are, Gabby's muscles go slack. Her right knee buckles, the coffee spills just a little. She carefully counts their blurry faces thinking, God, let them all be there. And to her great relief, she does see five smudges, five pairs of eyes like the abyss, five silent mouths. Maybe death is a balm. Maybe death heals the wounds, but time cannot. Caution, the moving walkway is ending. The people on the suicide hotline always tell Gabby to take big breaths. 
sometimes she calls because she's up to her neck in the void and thinking this is going to be it. The crush of emptiness is too great. She's not going to survive. Sometimes she calls just to hear someone else tell her to breathe. It's not a magic cure, her breath. It usually doesn't do much for Gabby besides buy time, but there's something beautiful to be said for buying time. Caution, the moving walkway is ending. So Gabby takes a big breath, but it comes in so rough, like the sea at the start of a bad storm. And inside the cracks that make up her body, it transforms into a sob. And that's it. That was great. Really Yay. Thank you. That was great. Thank you. Um, so if you want to get um, She Said Destroy, which was not obviously not what you read, but uh, there's the link there in the, uh, in the ticker there and in the bottom. Um, and uh, just remind us one more time the name of the collection that that's in, the uh, anthology. It's in Voices in the Darkness. Awesome. Cool. And there's a bunch of really cool other people who also wrote stories in it, so. Mm -hmm. Thank you. So we're, we're gonna take a, uh, a quick break. So um, just wanna remind everyone that uh, tonight's episode is sponsored by Tor and Nightfire. Uh, make sure to check out uh, Across the Gr uh, Green Grass Fields by Sean and McGuire. And uh, season one of Come Join Us by the Fire, which has a story by Nadia Bulkin and When She Was Bad. So we'll be back in about uh, five minutes with Seanan, so stick around.
Hello. Hello. Hi there. Hi. Welcome back to the second half of our show. Some of our, I thought we'd tell you some of our upcoming readers. Now these are still virtual until October, but July 21st, we have Kim Stanley Robinson and Nancy Kress. August 18th, we have AC Wise and Karen Lord. September 15th, we have Mari Neff and Ellen Clagis. And then our first in-person reading will be October 20th, uh, Mike DeLuca, Daryl Gregory. And November 17th, live uh, in-person, we have Robert Reddick, although we don't end PK with him. And uh, December 15th, David Leo Rice and N.K. Jensen. Am I, I'm echoing. Do you hear you it? are. Why am I? I don't know. Matt, any ideas? It could just be someone's volume is a little high. Um, I'll, I'll mute everyone better? else. All right, I'm, I made mine a little lower. Is that better? I, yeah, actually, it sounds better now. Yeah? I think it went away if I lowered my mic a little bit. So we're okay? Okay, yeah. I just muted everyone else in case we're getting a little feedback. But uh, go ahead, you can continue. Okay. Um, so we hope you'll come to the next few virtual readings, and some of you can make it to the in-person ones when we start again. Um, <clears throat> our next reader is Shauna McGuire, who writes, oh, and she has someone on her lap. <laughs> uh, Shauna McGuire writes science fiction, fantasy, horror, and comics. She isn't very big on sleeping, like a reasonable person. Her most recent novel is Angel of the Underpass, third in the Ghost Road series. Her first novel, Rosemary and Rue, was published in 2009 and has since been followed up by more than 40 volumes under both her own name and the name Myra Grant her pseudonym for more horrific fiction. Please welcome Shauna McGuire. Hello, thank you all for having me tonight. This is Elsie and I'm trying to convince her that she doesn't need to be on my arms right now. Come on, baby, get down. Go on, go on, good girl. And uh, tonight I'm going to be reading to you from a story called Love in the Last Days of a Doomed World. So thank you so much for joining us this evening out here in sunny, scenic Seattle, Washington. One. Her hair tastes like strawberry shampoo, chemical and sweet and repulsive and perfect. Perfect because it's hers. Perfect because she's here, 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 tangled in my sheets, cradled in my arms. She is my extinction event, my beautiful comet hurtling through space toward the unthinking dinosaurs of my past. She's perfect. She's flawed and fallible and perfect, and her hair is in my mouth, and if I didn't know that the habits and hubris of biology won't allow it, I would stay here with her, just like this, until we died. Let them find our bones tangled together like an ossuary from Ikea. Let them never know how close they came. But we can't lie here and sweetly starve to death. Our bodies will scream for food and water and visits to the toilet. We'll start to ache and stink and suffer, and they'll steal the strawberry from my mouth and the smile from the corners of her lips, and we'll get up. Inevitably, we'll get up. We're living things, after all. Living things struggle for their own survival. They can't help it. But they can refuse to see the comet coming. They never see the comet coming. Even when the sky is midday bright in the middle of the night, they call it pretty, call it remarkable, call it anything but what it really is. Call it anything but over. Two. This matters, even if it seems like it doesn't. Everything matters, 
even if it seems like it doesn't. My brother, sitting on the living room floor, cross-legged and concentrating on the funny books in front of him, his own little four-color world. Sometimes dad comes from work with bags full of them, and he'll sit on the floor with Adam for hours, both of them engrossed in the adventures of men who wear their underwear on the outside of their clothes, like that's enough to give them the power of flight, super strength, justice. Sometimes dad puts on a deep, plummy voice, like something from the news, and says, Justice isn't just us, it's everyone. And he and Adam will laugh and laugh and laugh. And I'm sitting on the outside, always on the outside, watching them, not sure where the entrance is, the door that leads me into their cozy little world where 20 pages is enough to save the day. It's not because I'm a girl. It's not. Sometimes I wish it were. Sometimes I wish my father didn't bring me funny books just because he thought they were for boys and not because he thought they were beneath me because he thought I would look at them with disdain before going back to my physics books and my equations. Adam and I are the same age, but he's the one who gets a childhood while I get the endless weight of expectations. Our little star, dad calls me when other people are watching and my little supernova, he calls me when no one is watching and I don't know what we're going to do, Sharon. I don't know what we're going to do, he says when it's just him and mom and he thinks I'm tucked away safe in bed not sitting in the hallway outside his bedroom door, eyes closed, listening to him worry about my future. I'm not a good girl. I'm a good kid, but I'm not a good girl. And my parents are conservative enough to be worried about what that's going to mean for me. They'll have years and years and years to get more worried still, years to watch me blossom into the brilliant woman they always knew I was going to be, years to realize that I'm never going to meet a man and settle down that my path forward is more complicated than they could ever have suspected. Right now though, that's the future. And the present is my brother on the living room floor, reading about a man in blue tights who can fly and lift trains over his head with one hand, who came to earth to save us, last son of a doomed world. He's from Krypton, Adam says, wonder and awe in his voice. Another world, far away and impossibly foreign. Even if the artists who create it, one line at a time, are working of necessity from their own understanding of the world. What would the air smell like on Krypton? What would the wind feel like? Everything would be different there, even if convergent evolution somehow gave us strong-jawed, black-haired men with smiles like pancakes on a Sunday morning. How did he get here? I love my brother, I do. We don't have much in common, we never will. When the future comes, when I'm tangled in a swirl of sheets with the taste of strawberry shampoo on my tongue, He'll be living with his wife and three children somewhere in the middle of Ohio, in a farmhouse I've only seen in pictures posted on Facebook, denying that anything's wrong with every word that leaves his mouth. Climate change is a hoax and we need to close the borders and it's not that we hate the gays. I love you, you're my sister. I'd kill anyone who said you weren't good enough. It's just that most gays aren't like you. They're not safe around children. They're not safe around normal people. And I still love him because he's my brother and the habits of biology are almost impossible to break. I'm getting the past and the future tangled together like two ends of the same ball of string. And I guess that's fine. I guess that's to be expected. You are who you were, who you will become all at the same time. You can't have a future without a past. His parents put him in a rocket ship and shot him off into space. Adam makes a pew sound like a laser fire, like the firing of a laser gun and forms a rocket with the shape of his head with his hand miming the moment when his comic book hero was launched into orbit by his loving parents. The awe in his face is even stronger now, 
thinking about loving someone so much that you'd send them off into the stars. Why? He looks at me gravely and says, the world was ending. The sun was about to go nova and destroy everything, just eat Krypton right out of the sky, and his parents knew, but no one would believe them. So they built a rocket, and they put their son in the rocket, and they sent him away to save him. It was the only way to save him. I wrinkle my nose. That's stupid. If the sun was going nova, they would have seen the signs. A sun doesn't die in an instant. They would have known. They would have seen. I don't care if you want to read about a man who can fly and shoot lasers from his eyes and have bulletproof skin, but that's just stupid. No one could stand at the end of the world and pretend that it's not happening. My brother looks at me, misery and anger and disappointment in his face. But it happened, he says. It happened. Krypton isn't there anymore. That's when I finally lose my last scrap of interest in four color fantasies. No one, pretend, well, no one would pretend this world wasn't ending when the sun swelled to fill the sky. No one would be that stupid or that willfully ignorant. It's not realistic. It's not real. Three, she stirs in her sleep and the motion is enough to pull her hair out of my mouth. I smack my lips, relieved to have them to myself again, already distantly missing the taste of chemical strawberry. She makes a noise, snuggles closer, and I hold her as tightly as I dare, as tightly as I can without waking her. This is a stolen moment, a stolen hour, and the comet is humming. Time is so short now. Time has always been short. 80 years, the first 10 spent learning and the last 10 spent losing isn't nearly as long as it sounds. 80 years is nothing when set against the long dance of days on earth, the slow rise and fall of empires. A person is born, lives, dies, all in less than the blinking of a geological eye. I am 40 years old. There was a time when I would have called that impossibly ancient, and all I can call it now is not old enough. I'm barely a baby, and she's two years younger than I am, and it took us this long to find each other. We wasted so much time. I never got to see her with adolescent acne on the bridge of her nose, burning alive with hormones and confusion, and I'll never get to see her sweetly seamed with wrinkles, hands shaking as she pours her morning coffee. We missed so much, and there's so little time, and so much left to do. I bury my face in her hair again, chasing the scent of strawberries chemical and sweet and temporary, like everything else about us, like everything else in the world. Four, this is what the funny books never told my brother about living in the last days of Krypton. That it wasn't only the baby hero's parents who noticed, who knew, who sounded the alarms and rang the bells and tried to speak, to speak when everyone around them cried for silence that people cared, yes, people cared and people cried, but that money and inertia spoke louder than any voices could have done. People with empty bellies have trouble caring much about whether or not the sky is falling, yes, but people whose bellies are overly full, people whose bellies have never been empty, who have lived their whole lives in the fear that one day the many will notice how much is wasted by the few, notice and rise up and cast them down, those people don't care about the sky either. They care about themselves. They care about having more than everyone else and meter more according to a scale that only they can see. When the first instabilities appeared in Krypton's sun, the ones whose bellies weren't empty but who still remembered hunger stood up. They said, we need to move, and no one wanted to hear them 
because the ones with nothing to lose had nothing left to give, and the ones with everything to lose had no interest in giving ground. This isn't in the comics, but it's in human nature, and the flying man is alien and human at the same time, shaped by the human hands that drew him. They stood up. They raised their voices as loud as they would go, and they were silenced, shut out, shut down, ignored, labeled hysterical, undermined, discredited, convinced to be quiet, convinced that things would be better if they stopped, that someone, somewhere, had a secret plan. Maybe most of them believed that, convinced themselves of its quiet inevitability, because what else were they supposed to do? One angry voice can't save a world. One broken heart can't heal a star. They could yell until the sky burned and not change a single thing, or they could sit back and enjoy what time remained to them before it was all over. Some of them must have fallen into quiet everyday despair. That's the side of the superhero we never saw. The people drinking themselves to death in their Kryptonian living rooms, eyes turned toward the hostile sky, waiting for the end. Maybe the rest of them built rockets. Maybe it wasn't just one baby hurled out into the void, destined for an alien planet, a place where he would never be normal, but where at least he could be. Maybe it was dozens, entire families, crying children, teens and infants, and everything in between. Gravity is unforgiving. Physics shows no favoritism. For one baby to crash to Earth, safe and sound and ready to thrive, how many did they have to launch? The rocket was hope, either for survival or for a quicker, cleaner death. I hope that somewhere someone is building rockets. I hope that somewhere someone is about to do the unthinkable for the sake of the impossible to avoid the unimaginable. I hope that we're as good as the people of Krypton. We invented them after all. We should live up to their example. Five, why did you let me sleep that long? She asks, rolling over to look at me. Her eyes are gummy with sleep, lashes sticking together, and there are creases in her cheek from where her face was pressed into the pillow and she's beautiful. She's so beautiful. And I love her more than I have ever loved anything. This love is a weight, a rock suspended in my chest in defiance of physics and biology both. And I suddenly understand so many things I never understood before. I want to build a rocket, I blurt. She laughs, reaching out to cup my cheek with one hand like I've just said the funniest thing she's ever heard. A rocket, she says. Really? To where? Krypton, I say. She doesn't laugh this time. She kisses me, and even though we both need to brush our teeth, her mouth is sweeter than her hair. She kisses me, and I know she understands, knows she would get into the rocket if she could, let me hurl her out into the void, past the shimmering sparkle of our gravity, into the hope that waits beyond. This isn't a comic book. She'd die there, breathless and freezing, and maybe that would still be kinder. She kisses me, and everything is hot and cold at the same time, and for a little while, we commit the final sin of Krypton. For a little while, we forget. The woman in, uh, sorry, six. The woman in the library isn't interesting enough to take my attention from my book. Not many things are. Books are better than people. They're easier and kinder, and they move as fast as I want them to, letting me take my time or leap ahead. Books are safe. I'm sitting on a hard plastic chair in the adult section of the library. The chairs in the children's section fit me better. My feet dangle more than a foot above the floor, but the librarians don't like it when I carry my weight in physics texts from one side of the library to the other. I'm not sure why. I don't like to make the librarians unhappy. And so here I am, content in my nest of paper and plastic and physics. 
So it isn't that unusual when the woman walks toward me, not the way it would have been if she'd been in the children's library where strangers aren't supposed to be. She drops a folded piece of paper on my book as she passes. I pick it up, intending to hand it back to her, but my eyes catch the equations inside and I'm lost. It's poetry. It's mathematics so impossibly advanced that they become a language all their own. And by the time I realize I'm looking at someone else's work, it's too late. When I manage to tear myself away from the equation, she's gone. I didn't really get a good look at her. I'm 11, all adults look alike to me. Her hair is the same color as mine. I remember that much. Finders keepers, I whisper and slide her note into my pocket. Tonight, I'll dream of those equations. Seven, this is not a story about Krypton. Eight, she shows up again when I'm 15. This time I look up faster. This time I see the angle of her jaw and think that she looks a lot like my mother, but she's not my mother. My mother is thinner, sharper, more worn away. This woman walks like she knows the world will step aside and let her pass. The second equation doesn't fit perfectly with the first, but I can see the steps between them the places where my own work will slide in and fill the gap. So I fill the gap. I can see the underlying question she's trying to answer now about time and speed and the way things move. I want to understand it. I want to know why she keeps dropping her equations on my table. I want to know. Nine, the shower runs for three minutes and eight seconds. The timer outside the bathroom door counting down usage like a condemnation. Residential water use accounts for less than 3% of wastage, but that doesn't matter. Making us account for every drop is so much easier than reining in the people with so much money that their lives are effectively part of a different genre. We're living true crime while they're living science fiction, and they get to boil oceans while we count cups. When she steps back into the bedroom, patting a towel against her dripping hair, the smell of strawberry shampoo comes with her, stronger than ever, and I'm in love. I'm in love all over again. I would do anything for her, anything to save her from the sun going nova, from the temperature rising as the water tables dwindle, as the economy collapses. Our ending will not be as clean as Krypton's. This is a comet flashing through the night sky to smash the sky and bring about a winter that lasts for decades, and not the sun deciding our story needs an ending. And maybe this is what we deserve. The people of Krypton, willingly ignorant as they were, fell prey to a natural disaster. There was no avoiding the fusion flash of a sun past its prime, no shifting the seas and skies of their homeworld to some other safer destination. We did this to ourselves. We had the warnings and we had the chances to change and we ignored them. But we is an unfair world, word. There are babies in the world right now, toddlers, children too young to have played any part in this inevitability. There are people who spent their whole lives fighting to reform the system. People who have worn themselves from stones into blades into stubs as they broke their hearts against the mountain. Not everyone did this. We somehow allowed ourselves to be governed by monsters, and by the time enough of us realized what was happening, it was too late. Not for the planet. This is not a story about Krypton, because no matter what happens next, Earth endures. Unless someone presses a button and cracks the world's crust, Earth keeps going, heals from the damage we've done, tries again. Dinosaurs and monkeys have had their turns. Maybe the coyotes get a shot next. Maybe the crows. Not us, though. We'll be forgotten. Characters from a funny book, shaken off and swept aside. I breathe deep, trying to chase the shadows away. The air tastes like strawberry shampoo. I like this brand. 
It's pretty new, on the market within the last five years. I'm going to miss it. I love you, I say. She smiles. 10. I recognize her when I'm 18 because the bones of my adult self has settled and because I've been waiting three years for her to show up again. The first equation, the second, and the pieces I've crafted for myself, they all tell me a story and that story says she was always going to come back here. When she sees me waiting, she smiles. She got our teeth fixed at some point. That broken incisor that always makes me feel a little lopsided is gone, replaced by porcelain perfection. I don't like it. It makes our smile exactly like everyone else's. But I'll still do it when I have the chance because there's power in anonymity. Everything about her is geared to blend into the crowd. Her hair, her smile, even the way she does her makeup so that she doesn't stand out in either direction. She could disappear in an instant. She's everything I've ever aspired to be. And that's good because she's me. She's always been me. Is this cheating? I blurt. Maybe that's not the most sophisticated question to ask my older self, but fuck it. I'm 18 and this is weird, even if I've been waiting for it since the day she dropped the second equation. Maybe, she says. I don't know. I gave me the first equation when I was you. And if there was someone at the beginning of the chain, someone who actually did the work, I haven't met that version of us yet. But you had to do enough of the work yourself to understand it when you got to the point of being this version of ourselves. You have to be able to make it work. Why? I ask. Because, she says, this isn't a story about Krypton. 11. There are no good times for women like us, for girls like the girl I was. I always thought when I was younger that the good times were inevitable, that humanity would keep getting better, would find a way to accept itself in all its complex wonder. But we fell prey to monsters before we could get there. And I no longer believe that humanity is going to become any better than it is right now. This is it. We'll burn or we'll drown, but either way we'll be over. Krypton is always destroyed. That's the purpose of the planet. It's a place to be from, a place to remember, a place to mourn. All those little funny book people who existed only to appear in the background of a few panels, watching as their sky caught fire, all those lives that never made the cover. There's no rocket for us. I don't know if there's going to be a rocket for anyone. Maybe someone will find a way. Maybe a ship will throw itself into the void filled with our best and brightest or filled with our richest and rottenest. But either way, we're, middle-aged, we're a middle-aged physicist with bad eyesight and no stomach for heights and her equally middle-aged concert cellist lover. We're not going to find a birth. The people who care about humanity will send the young and the people who care about themselves will send the old and we'll be stuck in the middle. People like us, we're the background characters on Krypton. We were always only here to go. There are no good times for us. The world turns, history repeats, humanity eats its young. But there are places where we can disappear, where we'll, where we'll be those nice women who keep to themselves and never married. So sad, what a waste. It will be a life lived in hiding, a life lived as sisters or close friends or companion widowers, but it will be a life. And in our bedroom, there will be the smell of strawberry shampoo and the tangle of sheets and her hands warm in mine, her body long as a life sentence stretched out beside me in the bed. This is not a story about Krypton. This is a story about comets. This is a story about getting out of the way. 12. 
She thought I was kidding when I told her what I was working on. But the tests have been getting more and more successful. The reach has extended further and further back. I can do this. We can do this. Yesterday, I visited myself in the library. I dropped the first piece I'd need and walked away, priming the paradox that would bring me here, to this moment, to this time. She looks at me. She lowers the towel. Are you ready? She asks. If you are, I reply. Our bags are packed. Vintage clothes and vintage cash and maps older than either one of us. There is no good time for women like us, but there will be time. There will be long summer afternoons and longer winter nights. There will be time. And if it's not good, it will still be sweet, like strawberry shampoo. It will be enough. We will be enough. Her smile is like the comet crashing through the atmosphere, ready to wipe the world away. It's the sun shining on Krypton on the last morning before it ceased to be the planet's lover and became its greatest enemy. All right, she says, let's go. 13. There is no rocket for us. There is no press of acceleration, no ozone burn. There is a box and there is a flash of light and then there is silence. She reaches for my hand in the dark, the weight of decades pushing down on us, holding us in place. The air tastes different. Our vaccinations are up to date, but we may be responsible for a new novel outbreak of the flu. I'd be sorry about that, except we're already a paradox. This has all happened before. This will all happen again. I hope someone breaks this cycle. I, I hope someone builds the rocket, but I can see her smiling dimly through the dark and this is enough. This is enough. This is not a story about Krypton. This is a story about going home. Yay, Kitty! So where is that from? I mean, has that been published? That was originally published on my Patreon, which means that first publication credit was already taken, but there was no contract on the audio. Wow. It's really good. That was really good. And who's that? <laughs> and, no. Yes. This, this is this is Piper. Uh -huh. Hi, Piper. Uh, I'm, yes, she, I, I've noted she has she's the one with attachment issues. So yeah, she woke up. So, uh, we, so we're gonna do a Q and A now. So if you have questions to ask. Uh, Sean and or Nadia, you know, put them in the live chat and we'll, we'll put them on the, uh, on the air. We'll ask the authors. Matt, do you want to start asking a question? Sure. Um, I'll start with Sean and since you just finished. Um, okay. So you're extremely prolific. How do you write so much? I really like dice. Okay. That is actually how I write so much. I start every morning by taking a bunch of D10s, is this shape here if you're not a dice person, mm -hmm. and Probably. lining them up on the top of my computer keyboard with the 10 pointing upward. And that is however many thousand words I have to write that day. Wow. And every time wow. I reach, every time I reach 100 or have to stand up for any reason, I iterate the die down. So if I've written 300 words, I'll turn it to seven before I get up and go to the bathroom, whatever. And when I clean the die, when I clear the die, when I reach the point of you have written 100 words past hitting the one, I take it off my keyboard. 
And until my keyboard is clean, I can't do anything but work, pee, and eat. Wow. That's pretty disciplined. That's <laughs> very disciplined. That's brilliant. That's a, that's a good discipline to have. Yeah. yeah. So how does that and work? With, hmm? How does that work with uh, edits and rewrites? Do you also count that? Edits and rewrites actually make me really squirrely. Like, I, <laughs> I enjoy them. I like to be edited. Having a good editor is a gift. And there are editors that I work with better than others. And editors who can communicate with me better than others, because that is a skill, too. Like, you, you, Ellen is really good at this. You have to have an editor who is aware of the fact that a group of writers is basically a superhero team. We're all slightly neurotic. We're all being composed by a different creative team. We all think you know, we all have massive imposter syndrome and we all think we're going to save the city. So you have to know how to talk to each one of us. And um, it's there a learning things... process. It's a learning process for the editor because if I've never worked with someone, it's like, how strict, how blunt can I be? Or should I coddle them first? Once exactly. I work with someone, I just like do this or don't not do this, but I, I have these problems, just fix them. <laughs> what do you think? And she gets more blunt the more you work with her, which is fantastic. <laughs> but edits and rewrites, for all that they are vital and essential, and I treasure receiving them, make me a little squirrely. Because while I am focused on those, I'm not generating new words. And so part of my brain clicks on and says, you're not working. You've been at your computer for nine hours today, not working. Hmm. Who wants to write 3,000 words before bed? Is it you? I think it's you. And that means that heavy editorial times sometimes lead to accidental trunk novels. Uh-huh. Oh. Interesting. <laughs> Nadja, uh, I have a question. Um, what was your answer? Oh, oh, go sorry. ahead. I'm sorry. Well, there's one from Mitzi. Should I put that? Do you want to ask that one first, Ellen, or should we do um, it Well, sure, but I wanted to ask first. Why don't we ask Nadja first? What okay, was go ahead. What was the inspiration for your story? Um, so the inspiration for this story was I listened to a lot of true crime podcasts, um, like a lot, a lot, a lot. And I also realized that there's something sort of, I don't know, um, iffy, <laughs> uh, squirrely, um, to say you Shana's word, um, about like listening to tragedies that have happened to other people. Um, and I wanted to sort of like engage in that idea of like, um, when, like, what are we really doing this for? Why, why are we listening to this? Um, and this story in particular, um, I will say my source is based on a family murder, um, in Hindrakaifek. Um, it's been talked about many, many times. There are actually some people who think the murderer came to America, um, after the fact, never been caught. Um, so it's a, this great, very haunting, creepy mystery. Um, but yeah, I wanted to, you know, just in the keeping of the spirit of why I wanted to write it, like say, you know, acknowledge that, that that's where it came from. Even though it's, you know, kind of my, my whole idea was sort of like echoes the true crime and storytelling and myth making, like it all is just echoes going forward into the future and you kind of, lose the initial spark that started it all that was very very real you know and like burned somebody's entire life you know but in the end it's just a light yeah uh we have a question from misty 306 what have you read recently that you recommend we read 
either of you, both of you, take that. Let's go first. I enormously recommend Catherine M. Valenti's Comfort Me with Apples, which is a novella coming soon from Tor.com Publishing. Um, the best thing you could do for yourself reading this book is not read the back. Know as little as humanly possible going in. It's sort of a Gone Girl cross with Bluebeard thing, and that is the closest thing to a public description that's come out. But the less you know, the more fun you will have trying to figure it out and put it together. Uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful book. Kat is always fantastic when she's setting up a mystery, and this is mysterious from start to finish. Nadja? Um, let's see. So one collection that I'm reading right now that I'm really enjoying is um, Daniel Mills's Among the Lilies. Um, it's very much in keeping with what I just read. Um, it's sort of like true crime horror, epistolary, um, and it's uh, very wistful, very haunting, very pretty. Um, it's coming out from under Undertow um, soonish, I think. Um, so I would definitely recommend that. I have it someplace, I thought, but someplace on my, who knows? I've got so much stuff where it shouldn't be on my <coughs> cocktail table next to me rather than filed away, but I, I got that collection. So I've been looking forward to reading awesome. it. Yeah. Um, More questions? Yeah, we have a question from Dave Burstein. I'm not quite sure how to interpret this. The SF world has responded to Sean in surprising ways. What do you think about the SF community? <laughs> Yeah, I'm not really sure what that's supposed to mean either or what the surprising ways are. I have been involved with running conventions and staffing conventions since I was 15. And the fact that the SF world has gone, there, there, dear, have another pony. We're okay with the fact that you think your cats are more important than most people. Why don't you take a nap? Is basically exactly what they were doing when I was 15. Um, I, I really do need a little bit more context. I think the science fiction community is huge. The internet has made it bigger than ever. Um, so what subsect are you talking about? Do you mean the convention going community, the Hugo voting community, just the general reading community? Um, I do find things surprising and confusing about the reading community on a relatively regular basis uh, because it is a reading community and people bring what they bring to the work. You know, so at least once a year, I have someone that is shocked that I am Mira Grant, which has never been a secret. I'm sorry, I didn't know someone else, Mira, Myra. It's Mira. Yeah, it's Mira. Imagine Fran Drescher playing the wicked steps stepmother in a production of Snow White. Mira, Mira on the wall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's Mira. <laughs> um, but you know, I. Uh. uh Okay, no, um, we, we have a question from, uh, from Amy for Nadia. A Amy wants to know, what's your favorite true crime podcast? Oh, <laughs> oh man, that's really tough. So my go-to is Generation Y. Um, and it's because I, I was driving from DC to Nebraska for 18 hours. And I was listening to that podcast. Um, I do generally think they do a good job, but I do think that if you're looking for a more like a less traditional um, 
podcast. There's like CBC, I think does really great um, investigative podcasts that are sort of like less, you know, covering sort of crimes that are more systemic, institutional, that kind of thing. Um, so I really recommend those. Um, but yeah, Generation Y is my go-to. Oh, and Swindled is about white collar crime and is amazing and is very needed because we have a lot of that. Shauna, do you have any favorite podcasts that you like? I don't like to have to focus on words and I don't commute. It turns out I mostly stay inside my house. Um, so I listen to music all day. I don't listen. I fell off of Welcome to Night Vale, which I freaking loved as soon as I left my day job. Amy has another question for Shannon. Uh, okay. Uh, here we go from Amy. Uh, for Shannon, what can you tell us about the sequel to Middle Game? It exists. <laughs> okay. It is not a direct sequel. It is uh, what Peter Kleins calls a sidequel. So it is in the same world. It is not necessarily following all of the same characters. You know, I do occasionally get huffy on Twitter when marketing or publicity describes something incorrectly just because it sets reader expectations in a way that I know preemptively I will not meet. And uh, when it was initially described as a direct sequel to Middle Game, I did a shouty. I'm like, it's not, it's not a direct sequel. We're not hanging out with these people. We're not picking up the narrative. We're just going back to that world. Um, it's called Seasonal Fears. We have some concepts for a cover that have not yet been shown anywhere. I'm really hoping that it's done soon. I'm excited about it. It is 167,000 words long. Oh. And uh, I did not sleep much while I was writing that. Wow. I have a question for Nadja. What are you working on now? Um, I'm working on a novel. Um, I have said this on so many podcasts for the last many years. But this, this time, I think, I believe I will actually finish it. Um, it's about a cult. Actually, it's not about a cult. It's about people who run away from a cult and the secrets that they take with them. Mm -hmm. um, wanted to write a, a cult novel that was like not about sort of your standard, like, you know, <laughs> like women in bonnets from the 1800s, you know, pretending that whatever that kind of thing, or like a Manson family thing. It was, it's, it's, uh, it's based on Nexium. So, um, yeah, it's kind of written from the perspective of like the assumption of that like people can join cults and will join cults and it's not a marker of intelligence or lack thereof. It's actually quite normal for people to want that kind of belonging. And Sean and I have a question for you. <clears throat> how do you keep, how do you, because you're so prolific, how do you organize yourself? I mean, how do you keep track of what you're writing when? I mean, do I, <laughs> well, so back when I still had a day job, which I did through, I want to say 2014, um, and I feel like a giant jerk for having forgotten when I left it, I would send, I would email a notepad file back and forth between my home and my work computer every day. So I'd send it to myself in the morning and then send it back to myself in the evening because I didn't want to get in trouble for having personal files on a work computer, it was named Escalations, because that was really easy to conceal uh, among everything else. Yeah. So that file is still with me today. 
Um, I have my escalations file and it is absolutely full of bookkeeping. So like I have what we call the rolling list and I can't show it to you because there's no way to print this file. It's like 900 pages long, but the rolling list will say, you know, you show up on it sometimes. It'll say 5,000 to 9,000 word air conditioner story title to be determined due August 1st, 2022. And then in parentheses at the end, it'll say Ellen Datlow Saga Press or whatever. And that way I keep track of who I'm working for, when my due dates are, how many words it has to be. I'm still one of those people that keeps a paper planner. I've had my Franklin Covey planner since I was in ninth grade and I will kill people for this planner. Mm -hmm. um, the only time I've ever gotten into a physical altercation was with someone was somebody bumped, bumped into me on the PATH train and tried to take the bag that had my planner in it. And I kicked him in the nuts because my planner was in there. I'm like, you could stab me, but it doesn't matter. Yeah. My entire yeah. external brain is in there. And what I'll do when you give me an assignment, if you contact me and go, hey, we've had someone drop out of this anthology, can you get me 12,000 words by next Tuesday, is I will open up the, plan the planner and manually count out on the days based mm -hmm. on what my average daily word count is and what I already have assigned those days, how many slots do I have left? Wow. Basically, I treat it like a game of D&D. I'm a sorcerer. I only get my spell slots back after a long rest. Screw the warlocks. They are doing a much better job of this than I am. Yeah, you know, I for a while I, I, I mean, I've, always, I've been using a, a date book like this for a long time. Actually, Jonathan Carroll gave it to me, and I've been using it for years. But I used to use the cheap, really cheap ones, and then I stopped when I got a computer and used the computer all the time, and put everything on my calendar until. The electricity went off in my living room in my old apartment for like, I don't know, five days. And I had no access to my computer. I don't think I had another a backup at that time. And I realized I had no idea what I was supposed to do for the next week. I mean, it was like, oh, my God, I don't remember what my schedule is. I mean, I don't remember anything. So I started getting a paper one again, you know, and I make sure I put everything on that end on my computer in case like the computer blows up or something. Yeah. And yeah, actually, I do that too. and I go back. I have all the. I have every year. I mean, I have them in a drawer. And every once in a while, I can't find something, or I don't know anything specific on the computer. But I remember approximately when it was, and I can find it in my paper date book. It's like, oh my god, there's, that's what I did then. So they are useful. <laughs> I have a funny story, Sean, about um, working on your work at work. Um, I used to do the same thing, and once I accidentally emailed that file to my boss, <laughs> uh -oh. and she was like, um, I don't think that this was meant for me, and I was like, hi, I'm really sorry, let's just move on and pretend that never happened. So I don't do that anymore because I'm like so terrified. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, I once emailed the entire payroll amount of the company to everyone at the company accidentally. So, yeah. It, 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 well, I got something really interesting that someone accidentally emailed as a consultant for tour. Teresa, close your ears. Actually, I have said, I think I told this to Irene Gallo. A few years ago, someone in accounting sent me everybody's earnings. <laughs> I mean, they said, I, I think they sent it to everybody and they weren't supposed to. I mean, it was like I could see everybody's, you know, royalties for like a year. 
And it's like, oh, and it was really interesting to see that. Yeah. It's not mm -hmm. supposed to be going to me. <laughs> you know, like one of one of the artists I was working with at Marvel accidentally sent me very graphic pornography. Oh. <laughs> okay. Like I actually do believe that it was accidental. The file oh name God. was ambiguous and he freaked out about 30 seconds after I received the messages. Don't open that, don't open that. God, God, don't open that, don't open that. So of course I opened it. <laughs> and of course um, you're like, I have to open it. Of course, I'm like, I have to right. see. And then immediately yeah. contacted our editor to say, hey, this person sent me graphic porn. It's okay, I know it was a mistake. I'm not bringing a sexual harassment suit. Please don't yell at him. Because otherwise I knew he was gonna report it to our editor and depending on how much he was take blame on himself, he could come off sounding like, I sexually harassed the random lesbian, hey! <laughs> and that's just not great. Uh -huh. Okay, Teresa, what does SMDH mean? Shaking my, my damn head. I'm sorry, what? Smack my damn head, I think. Oh, yeah, or either yeah. smack or shaking my damn head. Oh, yeah. Shake my damn head, yeah. Oh, that, yeah, no, no. yeah. Shake my oh, head. No, no, Teresa's yeah. saying glad that I assume the porn didn't come from you. Right, right. No, not the porn. <laughs> no, the uh, porn was not from anyone at tour. Um, so I have a question for Nadia, but I, I mean, um, this could apply to both stories tonight. Uh, your story was, was structured five short stories within a story. Why did you do it that way? Any particular reason? I think because I wanted to show like the concentric, like sort of like a drop falling in water, you know, and how it just like echoes out further and further. Yeah. Um, I think that that's one of the most beautiful things about art actually is the idea that you make something and then somebody else takes something else from it and it echoes further down, you know, and it might not be your original vision, but yeah. it's, impacting others and um so i wanted to sort of reflect that and also sort of reflect that like the idea that everything we hear is filtered through our experience and applied to our own lives and that's what we do to others too you know and that's what we the role we fill for others as well um so i thought that was the best way to do it but yeah i, th I thought it was really cool that both of our stories kind of had had similar sequencing um do we have more questions coming in from people um do you do either of you have questions for the other that sometimes those are interesting or for us <laughs> or for us sure not just twitter feed talks a lot about horror movies what kind of horror movies do you like oh man um i like sad movies that are also like very um emotional artsy um they don't have to be sad but I, I like them dark i like women being in the lead i like women being behind the camera if at all possible um i love the mod for that reason i love a sort of bold vision um yeah i mean i love a lot of different kinds of things i also love found footage on the other end but yeah did you see Personal Shopper? With oh, I love Personal Isn't Shopper. Isn't that amazing? I mean, love it. Love that it. was really chilling. And, yes. And showed that Kristen, yes. I can't remember, um, Kristen Stewart. that she could act. I mean, I knew she yeah. could act, but that was yeah. really, I, and it got no attention, I don't think. I mean, it, I don't know. It just I know you were one of the few people that like posted about it a couple times. And oh, yeah, yeah I, I absolutely loved it. Yeah. 
Actually, I think I may need to watch it again. You know, I was talking on my feed that I can't, there are things I have watched that I don't, that I want to watch again, but I can't. I mean, eventually I will, like the thing, the original, uh, not the original, the Carpenter one, that I loved it. I saw it in a preview in a screening room, and I, I've been wanting to watch it again, but I don't know if I can bear it, especially not alone. And also, um, um, Only God Forgives. Um, Laird Barron was talking about that. And I love that movie, but there's such violence. The, the violence in it really got to me, and it's hard. I think it'd be hard for me to watch it again. But I do have it on my Netflix queue, so eventually, I will bite the bullet and watch it again. And it's not. I mean, that's not a horror movie per se, but it's you know, it's a gangster. No, movie. I think I think horror violence. is a very broad brush. Yeah. I really do. Yeah, it does. Shannon, were you into horror movies? I don't recall if I've seen. Top I used movies. Kenneth Muir's horror films of the 1980s as a checklist. I may be the only person other than Kenneth Muir who went through that book and watched every single horror movie released <laughs> in the 1980s, including the ones where um, he had given the movie zero stars and said that if he felt it was ethically appropriate, he would have taken more stars away, put it into negative stars, and given oh. those stars to better movies. Like what? For example, was not wrong. Um, there's a movie called Home Sweet Home, which is a Thanksgiving slasher film, and those are two and a half hours of my life I'm never getting back. <laughs> two and a half hours? Wait a minute, that's, yeah, a that's really long. long. That was how long it took me to make it through it. I had to keep pausing. Oh, oh. yeah, I have to say I'm not into slasher movies. Um, I don't. I, I don't I for someone who reads a lot of horror and edits horror, people are always surprised that I said I don't want I don't I hardly watch any horror movies. I mean I'm very picky in my horror movies and someone will recommend like twenty different horror. I was like, no, I really don't want to see them. I'm just not interested. So I so what can I say? <laughs> I prefer to read horror than watch it, I think. Uh -huh. There's a lot of people like that. Any more questions from people? Got captive audience here. <laughs> if not, we can close it down. Or is anything coming in? <laughs> Wait a couple more minutes, but I uh, just want to remind everybody that tonight's episode is sponsored by Tor and Nightfire. Um, check out Across the Green Grass Fields by Sean and McGuire. And Come join us by the fire season one and two. Uh, season one has And When She Was Bad by Nadia Balkan. So make sure to check that out. Um, but yeah, so I think, oh, there, Sean. Sean vanished. She, she went. <laughs> that was a great magic trick. Oh, there, there. Oh, here she is. Oh, oh, she wow. I thought you would make it back before you came back. Oh, awesome. Sean, I don't know if you saw Amy, um, Amy's thank you. Did you notice that? Did you see that? Amy, thank I can't Amy. see that. I don't have the YouTube open. Oh, okay. Well, it's on. It's in the comments here. But do you want to read? It's also as a also as a fat girl who swims. I wanted to thank Seanan for the character of Cora in the Wayward Children series. Oh, you are so very welcome. Yeah, no, I spend a lot of time in the river at my local swamp. So, <laughs> uh, Misty's asking a question, but I'm. Um, is it um, to Sean? And I assume it's Sean because we already talked to Nadja about her ne next book or what she's working on. Well, either one of you, your next projects, plural. 
I mean, the project that I'm working on right now, I literally can't talk about because I am under the most NDAs I have ever been under in my life. I'm not even allowed to admit what the franchise is, which Ooh. is amazing. Lucas didn't do that to me. Um, so we're having a good time there. Uh, but, you know, after that is finished, I get to bounce back to working on my own stuff. And next up will be the next of the Up and Under books, which is Into the Wind Wrapped Wilds. Um, and the second of those, the one immediately prior to this, is Across the Saltwise Sea, and that will be out um, later this year. Saltwise Sea will, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, I am scanning the, uh, the thing for Amy's thank you. Oh, she just said thank you, which I appreciate. Thank you, Amy. You're very welcome. And uh, Nod, you said you, you're working on a book. Anything else you're working on? I mean, you know, I have like short story obligations, um, but uh, and next to next to that, um, no, just a book, just a book. All right. <laughs> so you're seriously working on that book now? But I'm seriously working. I'm almost halfway done. Good. Yes. Good. All right. Well, I mean, unless there are more questions coming in, uh, maybe we should wrap it up. And everyone go and drink. Yes. Hey. Yeah, it's dinner time to you now here. Right. Yes, it's time right. for me to, uh, you know, to get back online and look at all and go back to Twitter. Thank you so much for coming. Yeah. Thank you to the audience. But you guys are great. You know, you, your stories were wonderful. Yes, thank you. Thank you, Sean, and thank you, Nadia. Thanks to everyone who's who's watching and watched. Um, and thank you to those who are uh, supporting the Fantastic Fiction series, uh, not just now, but you know, in the past and in the future. So thank you. Uh, really looking forward to seeing everybody in person soon. So yep. uh, stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll see you next month. Great. Right. Bye. Bye. Good night. Bye. Good night.